Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 54 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Charles Manson murders. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. 50 years ago today, to, to this very day that this episode releases, in fact, Charles tonight. Man- t- tonight, that's right, Charles Manson and his sinister family were conducting a series of horrific murders. They terrified Southern California and shocked the nation and and the world, really. Some credit them with bringing the 1960s hippie culture to an end by this act. And this year, there have been several motion pictures about it released, including one starring uh, Matt Smith of Doctor Who fame as Charles Manson. And right now, there's a lot of talk of Manson in the news with people hyping and sensationalizing what happened and frankly, scaring people all over again. But Jimmy has done a careful study of the Manson murders, and he says there's reasons not to be scared. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Now, I, I, Jimmy, I understand we want to begin with several reassurances for the listeners. What are those? Yeah, well, so first of all, as always, when we do a true crime episode, we're not going to be dwelling on gory sens- sensationalistic details. We're going to be keeping it clinical. So if you have a squeamish stomach, you don't have to worry. We're not going to be going into all the really disturbing stuff. We will keep it as kind of bird's eye view. Also, as I said, there are reasons why we don't need to be as afraid of this as you might think. I've read a number of books and watched a number, and I've, I've studied this going back several years. I've read a number of books, watched a number of documentaries about the Manson family. And when I first did that, I, I said to myself, you know, I could really scare myself here. But as I started reading the first book on the subject that I did read, Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi, I concluded that as bad as the family's actions were, there were some things that were actually reassuring. There are reasons this does not happen all the time. And there are reasons why it happened when it did. Uh, It was due to a specific and highly unusual set of coincidences, uh, which is why we don't hear about stuff like this happening all the time. And we'll talk about those as we proceed. Also, it became very obvious to me that these people were always, always, always going to get caught. They were never going to get away with this. They were never going to be able to continue their murder spree indefinitely. This kind of evil is sharply self-limiting, and that helps keep us safe. So we'll also talk about that as we proceed. Now, we all always mention it when you've had a previous connection to a story. Is, is there a personal connection in this case? Yeah. When I first moved to California, I went up to Los Angeles for the first time. And this was back in uh, the 1990s. And a friend of mine was showing me around. It was really neat to see places I'd heard about all my life, but had never seen like Sunset Strip and things like that, Hollywood and Vine, you know. And he happened to know where the Tate House was. 
the the house isn't there anymore, but it was at the time I made my first visit to L.A. It's kind of up this it's kind of remote. It's up this back street up on the side of a mountain. And we went there and visited it briefly. We didn't like get close to it because it's behind a gate and stuff. But we did go up there and see it. And even just being there was really creepy. Mm. And then, as I indicated, I've I've studied this subject for some time. I've read a number of books, including books by members of the Manson family, both the killers and the people who refused to kill that they wrote later on talking about what it was like at the time. So let's start at the beginning. Who was Charles Manson? He was born in 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he died in 2017, two years ago, in Bakersfield, California, at the age of 83. He was in the Bakersfield prison at the time. Uh, Manson's mother was 16 at the time of his birth, and he never knew his father. In fact, his original name on his birth certificate was listed as No Name Maddox after his mother's maiden name. She then married a man named William Eugene Manson, but they divorced when Manson was two, but that's how he got the name Manson. Uh, His mother was arrested for stealing and sent to prison when he was four. He was then raised by an aunt, but his mother got custody once she was paroled. Manson was regularly truant from school and began stealing from stores. He was sent to the Catholic Gibbalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. He himself was not Catholic, but he was sent to this boys' school. He then ran away and committed burglaries to support himself, and he was then caught again and sent to Father Flanagan's Boys' Town in Omaha. Oh, wow. He had many encounters with the law and was placed in prison in 1951 when he was 16. So he's no longer in the juvenile system. He was now in adult prison. He was occasionally out of prison, but he spent most of his time behind bars until 1967. When he was released, he had spent more than half of his life, he was 32, uh, more than half of his life was behind jail, was behind bars. He was in jail. In fact, he had become so acclimatized to prison that he asked to stay. Hmm. But his term was up, so they kicked him out and put him out on the street. It was the summer of 1967, also known as the Summer of Love. And Manson was right there in San Francisco, which was the epicenter of the Summer of Love. He began gathering a group of mostly female followers around him who eventually became known as the Manson family. They then moved on from San Francisco. They got a a bus and they moved around and eventually settled in Los Angeles, where they became part of the Los Angeles scene. Got to know a bunch of celebrities. Grandpa Munster, Al Lewis had Manson babysit his children a couple of times. Oh, wow. So it's a little ghoulish, but it fits with the Grandpa (laughs) Munster thing. Hollywood is so weird. (laughs) Manson also got to know Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And for a time, he and the family moved in to Wilson's mansion on Sunset Boulevard and took it over. The uh, Beach Boys also recorded a version of one of Manson's songs. Manson had called it Cease to Exist, but the Beach Boys thought that was a little dark. So instead, they retitled it Never Learn Not to Love, which is a little more positive than Cease (laughs) to Exist. And it's on their 2020 album, if you want to hear it. Dennis Wilson also introduced uh, Manson to Terry Melcher. Uh, So Terry Melcher is apparently an important uh, figure in this whole story. Who is Terry Melcher? So he was a record producer, and that's why Manson wanted to meet him, because Manson wanted to make records. 
he Melcher was is also known as Doris Day's son. So he has, you know, kind of comes from Hollywood royalty, but he was producing records. He was basically scouting acts and then producing the records that they would produce. For example, he was producing the birds at the time. So like if you've heard, you know, turn, turn, turn based on Ecclesiastes three to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. That's like Terry Melcher produced. Okay. He also at the time was living with the actress Candace Bergen of Murphy Brown fame. So they were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And the place they were living was a rental house at 10,050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, which is in Beverly Crest, north of Beverly Hills. This uh, house was owned by another entertainment industry figure named Rudy Altabelli. There are a couple of houses on the property. There was a big house, which is what um, Melcher and Bergen were living in. And then there's kind of in the back, there's like a caretaker house, which Rudy Altabelli was living in. But then when he would go on trips, he would have someone else be the caretaker for him and he would rent out the big house. And so there are kind of different people coming and going on this property at uh, 10,050. Manson wanted Melcher to sign a record deal with him so he could publish his music. But after Manson auditioned, Melcher really wasn't interested. Manson's music, if you've ever heard it, it's like, okay, he knows how to play some chords, but he's not the Beatles. Right. And even frankly, the Beatles aren't always the Beatles. So he's kind of not completely untalented, but no great shakes either. And the fact that Manson, that Melcher was not interested in recording Manson, just enraged Manson. So now, how did Manson present himself to the family, as he called it? Basically, as a kind of philosopher, guru, musician, we know, which was not unusual for the time. The family, like other communes and similar groups, was into lots of sex, drugs and rock and roll. Manson had a kind of ecological philosophy, which also wasn't unusual for the time or now for that matter. And he called his philosophy ATWA, which stands for air, trees, water, animals. So those were things that he put a lot of value on. He didn't like people harming air, trees, water and animals. He would even like berate family members for stepping on bugs and stuff like that. Okay, Uh, He was unusual. In several respects, though, that, you know, he was different than other 1960s California gurus. He was a racist. I mean, just flat out. He did not like black people and Jewish people. He was also a misogynist. In his view, the only purpose for women is to have babies and serve men. He also was open to committing crimes to support his parasitic lifestyle. These could include petty crimes like stealing credit cards, also bigger things like stealing cars. And then they would do these things called creepy, creepy crawls, where Manson would have family members break into other people's houses in the dead of night when they were there and sneak through the house and move things around, but not really take anything of value. And and so these creepy, so they would do these creepy crawls on houses. I wonder where they got the name for that. I know when I was a kid, I had a toy called the Creepy Crawler Thingmaker, 
You could use this plastic goop in these metal molds that would then make your own little t- plastic toys, rubbery toys. And I don't know if they got the name creepy crawling from that or if both the creepy crawler thing maker and their creepy crawling had a common source. But they also would do things like do garbage runs, what they called garbage runs, to get food. So they would go to the garbage dumpsters behind supermarkets and get food out of them. And that was how they got their food to eat. They didn't pay for it. They just the girls would be sent out to do this. And once they like used Dennis Wilson's Rolls Royce to do a garbage run, (laughs) according to Susan Atkins, who is one of the key players in this story, the only thing the family ever paid for in this period was drugs. Everything else was free. They were they got free medical care at clinics in they got housing paid for because they were mooching off of Dennis Wilson and others. They got their food out of the garbage. They, you know, had all this communal pile of clothing they would use. And so the only thing they really paid for was drugs until the end when they started stockpiling weapons in addition to drugs. Manson also, he was open, unlike other gurus, uh, even though he had a kind of quasi pacifistic philosophy, at least when it came to animals. He was open to violence when it came to humans, and so he was into collecting guns and knives, and he claimed the Beatles were sending him messages through their music. This is a classic symptom of psychosis. It's called delusion of reference, where you think like you're listening to the radio or a record or the TV, and you think someone is sending you secret messages. That is a classic symptom of psychosis. So Manson's showing symptoms of that. He also thinks the book of Revelation is related to him, that he's in the book of Revelation. And this is another classic symptom of psychosis, delusion of grandeur. So Manson is having clear symptoms of psychotic thought patterns at this time. And he implies to people that he's Jesus Christ. He tells a story about remembering when he lived 2,000 years ago, and he remembers dying on a cross, and he remembers looking down and seeing at the foot of the cross Mary Magdalene, who also was Mary Bruner, one of the founding members of the family. And so he implied to his followers that they were like reincarnated early Christians, and that the Roman authorities had reincarnated as the establishment. The man. The man, yeah. (laughs) Also, he seems to have implied, and certainly some people thought that in addition to being Jesus Christ, he's also the devil. So he's like both. And he certainly thought he was a key messianic figure for our time that had a major role in what's going to happen in our day. And one of the things he thought was going to happen in our day was an event he called Helter Skelter. He understood Helter Skelter. Well, let's talk about what the term actually means. In England, a Helter Skelter is a kind of amusement park ride. It's basically a slide. It's like you have this kind of conical tower, like an ice cream cone upside down. And you climb up on the inside of the tower and you get to the top and then you there's an opening and then a slide wraps around the conical tower and you get on the slide and you slide down. And so that's what a helter skelter is. It's like you see these things at fairs in England or parks. And that's what the Beatles song of the same name is about. You can even hear it in the lyrics. 
When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Then I stop and I turn and I go for a ride and I get to the bottom and I see you again. So that's clearly the meaning of the song. But here in America, we don't have helter-skelters. We're not familiar with that term. In America, helter-skelter means higgledy-piggledy. It means confusion, just something that's all messed up. And so since Manson was psychotically thinking the Beatles were sending him prophetic messages through their music, when he heard the, the song Helter Skelter, he said, it's a coming race war. Now, this is, this is 1969, and it's four years after the Watts riots of 1965. So Watts is an area in the LA area, and there had been, been big race riots there four years earlier. And there were a lot of racial tensions in the 1960s. And so that's kind of feeding what Manson's thought process is. And he thinks, okay, there's going to be this big war between the races, and the white race is going to be destroyed. Black people, even though they're a minority in America are going to kill all the white people. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he also thought there would be like civil war between whites that would also kill a bunch of white people. And so what he decided needed to happen was he would take the family and go out to Death Valley where they would find the bottomless pit referred to in the book of Revelation. And this would it wouldn't really be bottomless, but there would they'd go down there and they'd be able to live underground and there would be all this great stuff under there at the bottom of the bottomless pit. And at this point, the family would have grown to be to contain one hundred and forty four thousand people who would have been attracted either by Manson's music. So it was very important to get his music out there to attract these people or, you know, through babies that the family was having, because remember, the only purpose for women in his mind is to have babies and serve men. So they were having babies without great medical care. And and then eventually what would happen is after uh, after the black people took over the world, or at least America, it would turn out they weren't properly prepared to be self-governing and they would need someone to govern them. And so in a completely racist, self-aggrandizing interpretation of his own future prophetically, Manson said, that's going to be me. So black people will not be able to run the country effectively. They're going to need a white leader and they're going to come to me and I will basically become the king of the world with the Manson family as my ruling elite. So okay. <laughs> that's what Helter Skelter is all about in Charles Manson's mind. It's not just a little cute ride for children. Yeah, and so I, I did not realize that the Beatles song predated it. Um, I yes. always thought they were they were connected. The Beatles were writing about it, so that's interesting. Okay, so that's that's a good point. So as far as we know, what's the first attempted murder that Manson was involved in? The victim was a man named Bernard Crow. He also had a nickname. He's often referred to. Uh, he was a little hefty, so people called him Lots of Papa. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll hear him referred to as Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. That's a coincidence. That's my nickname. No, just <laughs> <laughs> he was he was an African-American individual and a drug dealer. On July 1st of 1969, one of the Manson family members named Charles Watson. So this is not Charles Manson. This is Charles Watson. His nickname in the family was Tex. 
although he doesn't like to be called that because today it reminds him of his time in the family. Today he wants to be called Charles. In any event, Tex Watson was involved in a drug deal with Bernard Crow, and he scammed him out of a bunch of marijuana. This is what's known as a drug burn. If you ever, like, read Helter Skelter or other books from this period, you're going to run into the phrase drug burn a lot. And it apparently was common enough at the time nobody ever bothers to explain it. But what a drug burn is, is where you have a drug deal and one party, either the party with the drugs or the party with the money, cheats the other and thus burns them. So after Tex has taken the marijuana and not delivered the money, Lots of Papa calls Spawn Movie Ranch, which is where the Manson family was staying at the time. Is this rundown old ranch where they filmed movies, occasional episodes of Bonanza. People would come horseback riding on the weekends there, stuff like that. And the owner of the ranch, George Spawn, let, was letting the Manson family stay there. So Lots of Papa calls the ranch and asks for Charles meaning, apparently, Charles Watson. But instead, Charles Manson gets on the phone. And so this is kind of the first bit of a comedy of errors, because Lots of Papa tells Manson if he's not paid for the drugs, then he and his group are going to come out to Spawn Ranch and wipe everybody out. Manson reportedly understood Lots of Papa to be a Black Panther. If you're not familiar with him, the Black Panthers were a African-American rights group that were quite militant back in the 1960s. So they believed in not like passive, not pacifism, but actively defending black interests. And Manson, needless to say, was a little bit scared at the thought of a Black Panther coming out to the ranch with his Black Panther buddies and killing everybody. So he decided to take matters into his own hand, He you know, into his own hands. He arranged a meeting with lots of Papa and he took along a family member named Thomas Wallerman, or TJ. And he said, here's what we're going to do in this meeting. I've got a gun stuck in the back of my waist. It's at the bottom of my back is stuck in my, you know, like my pants were being held up by my belt. But the handle's sticking out. I'm going to have my face to crow so he can't see that I've got a gun and when I say so, you, TJ, take the gun and shoot Crow. So they're going to kill Bernard Crow before he can get the Black Panthers sicked on the Manson family. That's the plan. Notice Manson doesn't want to just grab the gun himself and use it. He, ha he orders TJ to do that. But when the moment comes, TJ balks. He won't use the gun. So Manson grabs it and shoots Lots of Papa, and he thinks he's killed him. So they leave. Well, it turns out Lots of Papa is not dead. He, he gets to the hospital, he gets medical care, and he later testified at Manson's trial. And Manson did not know he was alive until he saw him at the trial. And it's like, I thought I killed you. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. So that's the first one. All right. And that was July 1st, 1969. And so we're, we're, we need to move ahead a little bit. When yeah. was the next act of violence the family was involved in? 
It was a little more than three weeks later, around July 26th, so later that month, the victim this time was a man named Gary Hinman. Hinman was a music teacher and a Ph.D. student in political science at UCLA. He also reportedly had communist views, which was not surprising for the time. He also supposedly was a pacifist and practiced transcendental meditation, which also was not surprising for the time. And he also reportedly was a drug dealer, which was not surprising for the time. (laughs) According to the standard account, Manson sent one of the family members named Bobby Beausoleil, along with two women, Mary Bruner, she was the first member of the family, and Susan Atkins, who's going to be very important. He sent these three people, Beausoleil, Bruner, and Atkins, over to Hinman's house. The purpose was to get money that Manson claimed Hinman owed him. Hinman denied having any money, but under duress, he did sign over the pink slips of two cars that he owned. So Boussoulet now had the pink slips. A fight ensued, and Manson's face and ear were slashed with a bayonet. Hinman's face. Hinman's, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Hinman's face and ear were slashed, possibly by Manson himself. I mean, that's what Susan Atkins says is Manson was the one who did it. And then they sewed up, since they didn't have good medical supplies there, they sewed up the the gash with dental floss. After a couple of days of being held captive in his own house, Boussoulet called Manson by phone and said, look, Hinman's going to go to the police. If we let him go, uh, he, he, I mean, he's got this horrible scar now. I mean, it's not even healed yet. He's got this gash. His ear's been slashed. His face has been slashed. He's going to go to the police if we let him go. And so Manson ordered Beausoleil to kill Hinman, which he did. On the wall, they then wrote political piggy. Political because he was a political science major or student. He was a PhD student in political science. And Piggy, because they, I guess, viewed him as part of the establishment or something, or at least wanted to portray him that way. And they also made a, so in addition to writing political Piggy in blood, they also used blood to make a panther paw print. So this is an obvious attempt to frame the Black Panthers for the murder of this political science student. Then on August 6th, uh, Beausoleil was driving around one of the cars that Hinman had signed over the pink slips for, and he got arrested. And the cars, uh, the cops searched the car, and they found the murder weapon, a bloody knife, in the car. So, you know. Not a criminal genius here. Yeah. (laughs) Pro tip, if you commit a murder with a knife, don't drive around with it in your car that you have just gotten the pink slip from your victim from. (laughs) Don't let it be bloody. Right. So Beausoleil goes to jail at this point. Now, I should point out, Beausoleil has a different account of why all this happened. He gave an interview a number of years ago. He said Manson was actually not involved in this. But the fundamentals of the standard account are confirmed by Susan Atkins, who was there. And so we won't go into the details of Beausoleil's account, but we will have a link to it. After reading both so, you know, several angles on this, I'm convinced Beausoleil is just lying in his other interview to try to not get in trouble with people who might want to do him harm behind bars. In any event, that's the second incident. It's Hinman. All right. Gary, Gary Hinman was killed around July 26th, and Bobby Beausoleil was arrested less than two weeks later on August 6th. What was the next act of violence? This is where the 
big one starts. Uh, it occurred on the night of August 8th, so that was 50 years ago last night, and it was the one for which the Manson family became famous. That night, Manson ordered Tex Watson and several of the women, including Susan Atkins, to go to Terry Melcher's former residence at 10,050 Cielo Drive and kill everyone there. Charlie had recently been to the property looking for Melcher, but he had Melcher had moved and the owner, Rudy Altabelli, wouldn't tell him where Manson had, where uh, Melcher had gone. He said he didn't know. He really did. It was in Malibu. And I kind of wonder, because I've been to Malibu a few times, I wonder if I've been past Melcher's house. There are conflicting accounts about did Manson know where Melcher actually lived at this point? And there are some accounts that say, yes, he did, because he and the family creepy crawled Melcher's new home and took like this little green spyglass that Melcher had as a souvenir. So Manson may have known where Terry Melcher was at this point, but in any event, he said, go to the former Melcher house, kill everybody there. The victims were, number one, Stephen Parent. He was a teenager who was visiting the property's current caretaker, who was a guy named William Gerritsen. Rudy Altabelli was in Europe at this point, and so he had this young kid named uh, William Gerritsen in the guest house, and it was his job to care for the dogs and things like that. So Stephen Parent knew William Gerritsen and came over. He worked at a radio shop. He was interested, really, or a stereo shop. He was really interested in, in sound equipment, and he came over to try to sell him a clock radio. And that's actually how we know approximately when the murders were committed, because he plugged in the clock radio and then unplugged it again to take it with him when Gerritsen didn't want to buy it. So we had the time on the clock radio showing they had to be shortly after this time. Inside the main house were Abigail Folger. She was a young woman who was an heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune. Also, her boyfriend, Wojciech Frykowski. Frykowski was a screenwriter from Poland and a friend of the uh, Polish film director, Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski was the current renter of the main house, but he was in Europe filming a movie. Also in the house visiting that night was Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring was a men's hairdresser. He actually helped popularize men's hairdressing, and he was the former boyfriend of Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate. So he was over visiting her and the others that night. Incidentally, Jay Sebring made such a splash in the Hollywood scene. He and his, uh, he's actually in an episode of the 1960s Batman series, huh. where you, you have these two young guys who are all distraught because they've been in a crime and their hair's messed up. So they get taken to the Ocean Bring hair salon where they are cared <laughs> for by the actual Jay Sebring. <laughs> In any event, so he's over that night. And then, of course, Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, is there. She is an actress. She appears in um, Valley of the Dolls and the Fearless Vampire Killers and things like that. She never had, had not yet broken out. She had a number of minor roles. Uh, she's kind of starting to break out. But then she got pregnant. And she was so in love with the idea of being a mother. She, and she loved the house that they were living in at 10,050. She called it her love house. And so she uh, was staying at the house while Roman is over in, in Europe filming a movie. Jay has come over to visit her. She's got Abigail and Wojciech staying in the house. It's reported as kind of like, you know, caretakers to be there with her while she's pregnant. Because at this point, she's eight months pregnant. 
And then the Manson family people break in and they shot, they shot and stabbed everybody to death. And so that's five adults, Stephen Parent, Abigail, Wojciech, Jay and Sharon and the unborn baby who mm. if they had who could have survived outside of the womb at this point. And after, so if things had gone a little differently, the child could have survived. I'm not really going to go into that because it's disturbing, but it's been pointed out. After Sharon's death, the child was named Richard Paul Polanski after Sharon's father, Paul Tate. And as they were leaving, they wrote the word pig on the door after them. In, in, in blood. blood. Mm. Yeah. All right. What happened next? Well, uh, the bodies were discovered the next morning by Sharon Tate's maid, a woman named Winifred, Winifred Chapman. And so the police came in and they initially arrested William Gerritsen, the caretaker who was living in the back house. They thought, how could all this violence happen and this guy not know about it? So they arrested him, but then they fairly quickly released him because he passed a lie detector test, which to me means nothing. People who are guilty pass lie detector tests all the time, but they were and we'll be talking about lie detectors in a future episode, but they they let him go and they were sure based on the lie detector. And it's really the case. He had nothing to do with the murders. He isn't isn't innocent. They thought from the lie detector, he is definitely innocent of the murders, but we're not sure about his claim not to have heard them. He claimed initially to have stayed up all night writing letters, listening to records. And the he had his stereo turned up to like four or five. And later tests suggested that at that sound level, it's possible, though not certain, that he wouldn't have heard the screams. More recently, he's admitted he did hear them, uh, hmm. that he was just too scared to do anything. He says he heard the gunshots, which he thought were firecrackers. He heard a scream by the pool. He saw someone ran past the guest house. And then he saw the doorknob to the guest house where he was staying being turned. Uh-huh. And then the dog started barking or actually dogs. There was more than one. And that scared off whoever was trying to get in the guest house. And so he subsequently said, yeah, he knew something horrible was happening but he was just too scared. And you, you really can't blame him when there are multiple murderers outside and you're alone and unarmed. Right, right. What yeah. could he have done? Yeah. So the, the Tate killings occurred on the night of August 8th. What happened the next night? So on August 9th, 50 years ago today, Charlie took sam- several family members out in a car to commit new murders. And unlike the previous night, these were basically randomly determined. They weren't looking for specific people. They ended up going to several places, including a church where they were going to, like, kill the priest, but there wasn't one there. They ended up going to the house of a couple in Los Angeles named Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. They were a successful business couple. They had just come back from an out-of-town trip earlier that night, and it actually picked up a paper talking about the Manson family. And had been reading about it right before Charles Manson entered their house and tied them up, telling them it's all going to be okay. We're just going to rob you. He then left the site and had the others, including Tex Watson, murder them by knife. On the walls and the refrigerator, they then used blood to write several things. They wrote the word rise. They wrote death to pigs. And they wrote helter skelter. 
Leslie Van Houten didn't know how to spell Helter, so they uh, wrote Helter Skelter. So they didn't kill anyone the next night, August uh, 10th. So why not? What happened? According to Tex Watson, he was able to get Manson to stop. There, Manson had been, even though people had kind of been going along with Manson, he had been meeting resistance. Some family members had refused to kill. And even those who, who did go along with this were having problems with it. Tex Watson says he told Manson he had gotten a call from a friend who had like gotten a call from his mom in Texas. And so and Manson knew that he had gotten this call. And so what Watson did was he said, look, my mom called because she was concerned about me because the FBI have been to my home in Texas and they think I might be involved in these murders, Hmm. which was a lie. But it made Manson, the FBI had not been there, but it got Manson to think the FBI may be on our trail. We need to refocus our efforts on getting out of Dodge, on leaving Los Angeles and going to Death Valley. So that stopped the killing spree, according to Watson. He was able to get Manson off that subject. So did they immediately leave the the Spawn movie ranch? No, they weren't geared up at this point to transport everybody, and they wanted to get more equipment together to live in the desert. So they stayed there for at least another week. And on August 16th, the authorities raided the property and they arrested 26 family members, which gives you an indication of how big the family was at this time. It was 26 kind of core members and some hangers on. According to the police, they had been stealing Volkswagen Beetles and converting them into dune buggies to go live in the desert. And that's what he commonly did, that he modified dune buggies out of other cars like a Beetle. Eventually, though, even though they arrested basically the whole family, including Manson, they let him go a few days later, allegedly because the warrant had been misdated. So it was an illegal search and seizure, and the Manson family was back on the street. So once they were back on the street, did they commit any more murders? At least one. On August 26, so this is like 10 days after the raid, Manson had three of the male members of the family, Tex Watson, Bruce Davis, and Steve Grogan, who was known as Clem, kill a ranch hand at Spawn Ranch. Uh, the victim's name was Donald Shea. He was known as Shorty. And he was an aspiring movie actor. He, he had like little bitty parts in Westerns and was hoping to break out. But when he wasn't doing that, he was working at a ranch hand, as a ranch hand at Spawn. There had been friction between him and Manson for a long time. In part, uh, Shorty's wife was black and Shorty was not black. He was white. So Manson didn't like that. Also, Manson suspected Shorty of having set up the August 16th raid. And Shorty apparently was trying to get the owner of the ranch, George Spawn, to let him, Shorty, kick the family off the property. So he had apparently been having discussions with this, about this, with George Spawn. But George Spawn was a blind man who was 80 years old at the time and was being taken care of by one of the Manson girls who was there to overhear everything was being said to George. So it's thought that all of that played a role in why Manson had Shorty killed. So after Shorty was killed, was that the end of the killings at this point? Well, for the time being, the string of killings began on June 1st with the attempted murder of Bernard Crow or Lots of Papa. And it came to a close less than two months later on August 26th with the murder of Shorty Shea. In total, uh, 10 people had been killed, including uh, Sharon Tate's unborn son, 
Manson, though, thought he had killed lots of Papa, so he thought they had killed 11. The family would have other victims, but they're not part of this series. So when were the Manson family finally taken into custody? After Shorty's death, the Manson family moved out to Death Valley, where they thought they were going to find the bottomless pit, and they were living at a place called Barker Ranch, which was owned by other people, but they were allowed to live there. They started looking for the entrance to the bottomless pit to wait for Helter Skelter, but for some reason, they, they just couldn't find it. You know, <laughs> don't, don't know what's up with that. Huh. In any event, to fill time, they amused themselves by setting fire to a Michigan loader, a piece of earth-moving equipment. And that got the Inyo County police on their trail. So it's like someone burns up a piece of someone else's earth-moving equipment. Let's see if we can find out who did it. And they did. So um, on October 10th and 12th, the Inyo County police conducted two raids on the Barker Ranch area and took most of the Manson family, including Manson himself, into custody. He was one of the last ones they got. He was he was a little short guy and he was able to hide in this Actually, if you see pictures of it, it's amazingly tiny in this like little cabinet on the floor of a bathroom in the ranch house. One of the arresting officers like spotted something suspicious about this cabinet and then hauls Charles Manson out of it. And <laughs> so that was that was his last free moment on Earth. But even though they were all arrested, they weren't connected with the murders. They were arrested for burning a piece of earth loading machinery and various other offenses, but the authorities didn't know they were the ones who committed the murders. So then how did that connection to the murders get made? Before his capture, Manson had been bragging to people about the murders. He had also been threatening people that if they didn't do what they want, the same thing could happen to them. He like grabbed one man by the hair and said, don't you know I'm the one who's doing all these killings? So... <laughs> There were people out there who knew that Manson was claiming responsibility for these murders. Other family members, like Manson's former right-hand man, Paul Watkins, who is not the same person as Tex Watson. So these are right. two different guys. Paul Watkins had refused to participate in the murders and left the family. But he knew about them. So, I mean, Manson had asked him. I mean, he could tell murders were coming, and that's what prompted him to leave the family. So um, there were people who had these bits of information and these witnesses started coming forward. The key breakthrough was when Susan Atkins got arrested. Uh, she had been there on both nights of the murders. And once she was arrested, she started spilling the beans to two of her bunkmates in prison. She was in the Sybil, Sybil Brand Women's Correctional Facility. So these were all women prisoners. And she started telling them these cry crazy, wild stories about the killings. And they were so extreme that the bunkmates at first thought she's just making them up. She's just trying to sound tough. But eventually, they took her seriously enough. They started reporting what she said to the authorities. And that's when the light went on and the authorities realized what they had on their hands. They thus learned the identities of the killers, and they put out warrants for the ones they didn't yet have in their custody. These people had fled to other states, including Tex, who had gone back to Texas. And soon they were all locked up. So what happened when they were eventually put on trial? Uh, there were several trials, actually, and it's a fascinating set of stories. We may look at it in the future. The family engaged in a bunch of really amazing courtroom theatrics. They also did some stuff outside of court, like kill one of their own lawyers. 
a guy named Ronald Hughes, uh. who mysteriously died on a camping trip. But it was the family that did it. At the main trial, Manson and three of the girls were being tried for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and it was the longest trial, the longest murder trial in American history. It went on for nine and a half months. That's how long the jury was sequestered and away from their families. Oh, wow. It also was the most expensive such trial. And in the end, the killers were all convicted and sentenced to death. But then on February 18th, 1972, so this is like a couple of years later, the, the California Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional as cruel and unusual punishment under the state constitution, under the California constitution. Consequently, their sentences were all reduced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after seven years. And so the killers have all been up for parole repeatedly since then. Needless to say, victims' rights groups have been very vocal uh, in opposing them ever being released. And so every time this comes up, you have you have a big stir about it. And so far, the only family member who has been released was Clem, Steve Grogan. Uh, he was released in 1985. And there were a couple of mitigating factors in his case. One, he has diminished mental capacity. And so because of that, he was never even sentenced to death. He was just sentenced to life imprisonment. He's slow, to put it in the vernacular. And so people really didn't fully blame him for everything that he was involved in. Also, he finally he was the one who finally helped the authorities identify the remains of Shorty Shea. They didn't know where he'd been buried, but Grogan helped them. Other family members like Charles Manson himself and Susan Atkins uh, died in prison and they never saw, you know, freedom again. And some, like Tex Watson, are currently serving their terms. In fact, Tex Watson is actually here in San Diego. Hmm. Uh, he's in a prison here in San Diego County. I remember growing up, uh, occasionally, you know, seeing Manson come up for parole. It would be in the news every once in a while where Charles Manson is going to his parole hearing again. And there'd be a, a, a little bit of a media circus as this guy who was yeah. never going to get out right, right before a parole board. All right. So uh, so th that's the background. That's the facts of what happened. What are the theories about the Charles Manson murders? The big question is why? Why did they do these things? I mean, this is so unlike other murders in history. Why would they do this? I mean, they're killing these people they don't even know. They're writing this crazy stuff on the walls. What's the motive? And so there have been a number of motives that have been proposed. One theory is that they were sent to the Cielo Drive house to on August 8th to either take vengeance on or scare Terry Melcher for not coming through with the record deal for Charlie. Another is that they were sent there to take revenge on Sharon Tate and the people who lived in her house. Another is that the 8th and 9th uh, murders, the murders of the 8th and 9th, were meant to be copycat murders that were similar to the murder of Gary Hinman. So it would convince the police that the real murderer of Gary Hinman is still out there. It's not Bobby Beausoleil, so we can let him go. Because he was still in jail on because those nights. He, he was in jail and could not have committed those murders. So that's the copycat theory. Then there's the prosecution theory that uh, Vincent Bugliosi, uh, the prosecuting attorney in this case, explained in court, which is what this was all about. To, this was all to bring about Helter Skelter. 
So these riots, uh, these murders would be blamed, the idea was, on black people. You notice like the Black Panther paw print. And they also like dropped off Winifred Chapman, uh, not Winifred Chapman's, uh, Rosemary LaBianca's wallet in a black area of Los Angeles where they hoped someone would find it and use the credit card and get blamed for that murder. So they're trying, according to this theory, to frame black people for these murders and also to show black people what to do to initiate Helter Skelter so that the white race would be wiped out and Charles Manson could become the new messiah. Okay. And then there was one other theory? Yeah. Susan Atkins has her own theory, which we'll talk about after we deal with the others. Okay. All right. So let's look at the reason perspective. Uh, what, it's, what about the theory connecting the Tate murders to Terry Melcher? Well, I think there's some truth to this. If Manson couldn't have found out where Melcher was living but wanted to scare him, then killing everyone in his former house would accomplish that. And it did. Melcher had to, like, have Valium in order to even be able to testify at the trial. But there are, as I mentioned, indications that Manson did know where Melcher was currently living in Malibu because apparently they it's claimed they creepy crawled his house and got this green spyglass. But the Melcher thing doesn't explain the whole pattern of killings. I mean, if you just want to scare Melcher, you stop after August 8th. Why do you need to go on to kill Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, who you don't even know? So the Melcher motive doesn't explain everything. What about the idea that Manson was taking revenge on the people who lived in the Tate house? This is also possible. Manson had been to the house on more than one occasion, including with Terry Melcher. He'd been there before, like he once got a lift from Dennis Wilson back to the property and Manson was in the back seat. But Manson had also come there looking for Melcher. And when he got there, he was looking around and he's this scruffy guy. And at the time in the house were Sharon Tate and her photographer, who was a guy named Shirok Hatami, uh, who is from Iran. And Shirok was protective of Sharon, in part because she's really pregnant at this point, but also he's just protective of her. And so he sees this scruffy guy looking around the property. He goes out, he confronts Manson, and Manson says he's looking for Melcher. And Shirok says, I don't know who that is. He's not here. Maybe it's the person in the back house. And you can take the alley to go there, well, meaning the like path back to the guest house. So he does. He goes back there. But in the process of all this, he'd had this kind of little angry incident with Shirokatami. And in the course of that, Sharon Tate had come to the door to see what was going on. And so Manson had seen Sharon Tate and had this bad experience on her property. And maybe that's why he, he thought of that house that night. But even then, it doesn't explain the whole pattern of killings. If you want to get back at Sharon Tate and Shirokatami, okay, go kill everybody there, but then you can stop. So what about the idea that the killings were to get Bobby Bosley out of jail? Again, there's some plausibility to this, and apparently Manson said something like this to some of the family members. Um, also, by writing similar things on the wall, it could suggest, you know, political piggy, pigs, pig, things like that. It could suggest that these are all the same group of killers, and therefore Beausoleil wasn't the actual killer of Hinman. So it's possible, but the crimes really weren't similar much. I mean, the they, they involved knives, 
and they also involved some variation of the word pig. But if you really wanted to make the authorities get the message, this is the same group of killers, you would put a paw print at all of the other ones, like the one at uh, Hinman's. And you wouldn't write just death to pigs or just the word pig. You would say political piggy again. That kind of brings us to the helter-skelter motive. Yeah. So what was the, the idea about, about this idea that they were going to bring on these helter-skelter race war? This was considered really far out at the time. And uh, even today, a lot of people have trouble believing this. You'll have a lot of people in the kind of community of people who study Manson who say they, they don't really buy the helter-skelter motive because it's so far out. I don't get that. I don't know if it's these people aren't religious or something, but there have been a lot of crazy religious ideas. And if someone's <laughs> really convinced of something religiously, they're willing to die for it and they may be willing to kill for it. So I don't, I, I don't find, I find it bizarre and I find it very unlikely that you'd get a collection of people who who are doped out enough and crazy enough to do this. But once you've got a bunch of crazy doped out people together and you're pumping them full of all this religious nonsense, you know, Mance was apparently sermonizing every night to these people. I don't have a problem believing that people could go believe in the helter skelter motive. There's been enough uh, crazy cults in the intervening five decades that we've yeah. seen the British Davidians, the, the, the Guyana, all of these things that have happened since then, yeah. it makes it easier to believe that people would go along with these crazy ideas. Yeah. Now, Norm, and also Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, documented all this really well at the trial. And multiple family members admit that Manson was talking about Helter Skelter a lot and that bringing it on was a key motive behind the murders. I think that the other motives, like the Melcher revenge motive or the Tate revenge motive or the get Bobby out of jail motive, those may have played a role. But according to the, a bunch of the key family members, Helter Skelter was the main thing. They wanted to bring on the race war. So that's all the, the major motives. Uh, but you had mentioned there was a, a, a theory from Susan Atkins. What was that? Yes. One? Yeah. So this is very interesting. Now, she doesn't claim Manson told her this. She deduced it in hindsight based on things she remembered seeing and hearing. She offers this theory in her book, The Myth of Helter Skelter. Basically, what she says, it doesn't deal with the killer's motives, the people who actually committed the crimes. Instead, it deals with Charles Manson's motive for ordering the killings. So the killers thought we're going to bring on Helter Skelter and stuff like that. But she says that's not why Manson ordered the killing. Basically, she says Manson, she doesn't dispute that he talked about Helter Skelter and he told people we're going to bring it on. He also, she says said, we're going to get Bobby out of jail and we're going to scare Terry Melcher and we're going to do all this stuff. But she thinks that Helter Skelter was not what Manson was really after. In, and, and before I describe her theory, I kind of want to talk about a big question that I had when I read her book, because in Helter Skelter, that's Vincent Bugliosi's book, she comes across as a total crazy person. <laughs> I mean, of all the members of the family, it's like Susan Atkins comes across as the craziest based on what she told her prison bunkmates. And uh, there's good reason to think that Bugliosi's account is pretty accurate. Um, Tex Watson, in his book, 
says that when he gets questions from people, he recommends one of the things he recommends is go read Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter. It's about 85 percent accurate, which is really good accuracy for a book written from an outsider, you know, after the fact, trying to trace what was going on in this crazy cult. So Watson endorses Bugliosi's book. And so that gives his account credibility, which then makes me wonder, Okay. Atkins told her bunkmates all this crazy stuff. What's her present mental balance going to be like? Could she ever really recover proper mental balance after getting off the drugs and having time to think? Or is she just permanently crazy? So I wanted to see, as I read her book, I wanted to see if she would address the things she said to her bunkmates and if she would have a good explanation for them. If she, I mean, the really wild stuff, if she doesn't address it or if it isn't a convincing explanation, then I'd say, I don't think I can trust her judgment now in what she's saying. But if she if she says, yes, I did say those things and here's why and it's a good reason, then, okay, I can give more credence to what she's telling me now. And in fact, she did address the subject of her bunkmates, and I thought her explanation was actually reasonable. According, I mean, it's at least certainly within the realm of possibility. I didn't find it implausible. She said that as an ex-con, because remember, Charlie had spent more than half of his life in prison. As an ex-con, Charlie was always telling the family members about what it's like in prison, which is not surprising since they were always in and out of jail because of the petty crimes they committed to you know, support their parasitic lifestyle. And one of the things Charlie stressed to them is when you're in prison, you've got to stake out your turf. You've got to make other people think you're tough so they won't mess with you. So when you're in prison, make up and exaggerate stories about yourself to tell other people, don't mess with me. And so as a young woman, she's, I think, like 19 or 20 at the time, Susan Atkins finds herself in jail with these two bunkmates who she thinks are coming on to her and she wants to scare them off. So the only story she knows is what's recently happened and she decides to start telling them about it and jacking it up to make it sound even way worse than it was and talking about all kinds of crazy plans for the future uh, to make herself sound big and tough so these other women will leave, will leave her alone. And in fact, as Bugliosi notes in his book, they initially thought she was just making this stuff up to make herself sound big. It's possible. I've, I've heard that same that same thing, like that cons give that advice, you know, make them think you're crazy or tough and they'll leave you alone. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so what? So then let's get back to her theory. What did she think Manson's motive was? She points out that Manson repeatedly took steps to distance himself from the killings. He ordered TJ to shoot lots of Papa, and he only shot lots of Papa himself when TJ refused to do so at the last moment. He had Bobby Beausoleil and some of the girls kill Hinman. He had Tex and some of the girls kill Sharon Tate and her guests. He had Tex Clem uh, and some of the girls to kill Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. And he had Tex Clem and Bruce Davis kill Shorty Shea. He ordered all these killings, but he didn't commit any of them himself. It looks like he's trying to keep his hands clean. 
presumably so he could never be convicted of murder. Now, actually, you can be convicted of murder even if you don't pull the trigger. If you're if you're ordering the hit, Manson wasn't a good lawyer, though. So right. but apparently he's trying to protect himself from future murder charges by not ever technically committing a murder himself. But notice the incident that started the whole series, the shooting of Bernard Crow. When that goes down, because T.J. Balks, Manson is the one who does use the gun. And so Manson's hands are dirty on the first crime. So he could, and he thinks he's killed lots of Papa. So he thinks I'm on the hook for murder with this one. Not just attempted murder, but actual murder. So you put yourself in his shoes. Manson thinks, I've killed a Black Panther, and the Black Panthers are going to come kill everyone in the family in revenge. I want to get the family out of L.A., but I need money for that. Who do I know that I think has money? Gary Hinman. I, for some reason, think Gary Hinman has a lot of money that he's, like, inherited. So let's send Bobby Beausoleil over there and try to convince Hinman to become a member of the family so we can get the money, or at least get him to give us the money. But Manson loses his temper in a confrontation with Hinman during his captivity and slashes Hinman's face and ear, guaranteeing Hinman's going to go to the cops after this. He thus orders Bobby to kill Hinman, eliminating Hinman and getting Bobby's hands dirty so that Bobby won't testify against Manson either about Lots of Papa or about Hinman because mm -hmm. Bobby's on the hook now, too. They then put a panther paw print on the wall to try to get the cops to put the heat on the Panthers to distract the Panthers and keep them from killing the family. Then Bobby Beausoleil goes and gets himself arrested, but the police aren't connecting the Hinman murder to the Black Panthers, and Manson starts worrying that Beausoleil will make a deal with the cops and turn on Manson, telling the cops about his role in the Lots of Papa killing and also the Hinman murder. So he's worried Bobby's going to make a deal. That would send Manson back to prison. And it's now the 1960s and the prison, the late 1960s, and prison has lots of Black Panthers in it. So he's a little hesitant to go there. So Manson, therefore, this is Atkins' theory, orders the Tate killings. He both tells people we're going to get Bobby out of jail. And he says we need to bring on Helter Skelter, not because he believes it, but because a really good L.A. race riot would take the heat off him and the family. If the cops are distracted with a race riot, they're not going to be looking at the family. He thus sends Tex and some of the girls there to get their hands dirty so they can't testify against him either. But the next day, nobody is connecting the Tate murders to the Hinman killing. So Manson gets Tex and Clem and some of the girls to go out and kill random people to get their hands dirty, they end up finding the LaBiancas, and Manson ties the LaBiancas up, but once again does not kill them himself. So he's still trying to keep his hands clean, get everyone else's hands dirty. At this point, uh, Manson switches tactics, and they start getting ready to flee to the desert by stealing vehicles and converting them into dune buggies. That leads to the first arrest on August 16th. Uh, Atkins' theory, therefore, is that while Charlie told his followers a whole bunch of stuff, to justify the killings, including getting Bobby free and Helter Skelter, his own motive, his real motive, was to save his own skin. 
He thought he had killed lots of Papa and the Black Panthers were going to kill him and the family. He thought other family members who knew about this might testify against them. So he wanted to get everybody's hands dirty and then get ready and leave Los Angeles. So according to Atkins theory in hindsight, she put all this together later. She thought it was a series of bad decisions brought about by Manson's initial assault on lots of Papa and subsequent paranoia. So breaking bad in a big way. This is just like, yeah, this is like what happened in the TV show Breaking Bad. That's right. So so that's a fascinating theory. Uh, So what do you think of 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 this theory uh, yourself? Well, it's hard to know because we're ultimately talking about what's going on in Manson's head. I don't think it's at all implausible that saving his skin had a role in it. I mean, I, I, I buy the idea he's trying to keep his hands clean on this mistaken theory. He's not going to be able to be charged with murder. But my question is, did he really believe Helter Skelter or was that just an act? And according to and it's hard to know. You know, you never and without telepathy, we don't know. Or, um, you know, a lie detecting MRI machine, we don't know. Right. Um, and he's dead. But according to other family members, including Paul Watkins, who refused to kill and left, and Tex Watson, who did kill, but then repented, they both said in their books that, no, Manson absolutely believed his helter-skelter stuff. In his book, Manson's Right-Hand Man Speaks Out, Tex uh, is directly asked about whether Manson believes in Helter Skelter or believed in it, and he said he absolutely did. Also, you can kind of cross-examine Atkins' theory. Um, For example, if the real goal was to get Boussoulet out of jail, why didn't Man—initially, before the whole cascade of mistakes— why didn't um, Manson give the killers more specific instructions like write political piggy and put a panther paw print on the wall? Of course, you could say, well, he and they were all drug addled and confused. So, you know, there's a rejoinder to that. Right, right. All right. So that's the reason perspective. What can we say about this whole thing from the faith perspective? Obviously, all kinds of things the Manson family were up to are contrary to Christian morals. I mean, free love, getting blasted out of your mind all the time, stealing to support a parasitic lifestyle, murder, kind of a big one. All of those are against Christian morals. The fact that these are contrary to Christian morals reveals the first of two main problems with the Manson family from the faith perspective. The first is that the way you test new revelation, like what Charles Manson was claiming to give these people, is you always check it out against previous known revelation. So, so, you know, this is a test. You find it in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet says something to you and produces a sign, but says, let's go after other gods, you don't listen to that prophet because he's contradicting prior revelation. You're only going to worship one God. Same way you got your new Messiah. He says, Oh, let's go kill people. Okay, thou shalt not kill. You know, this new revelation is not consistent with the old revelation. And it applies, and this principle applies not only to the family's moral violations, but also to their theological conclusions based on Manson's reported new revelation, which contradicts previous Christian revelation. No, you are not reincarnated early Christians. The true fate of mankind, according to the Bible, according to prior revelation, is resurrection, not reincarnation. Also, 
how can Charles Manson be Jesus Christ when we are specifically told in Acts 1.11 how he's going to return? He's going to descend from heaven the same way he ascended into it. He's not going to be reincarnated. So if they'd listened to the prior revelation, they wouldn't have fallen for Manson's lies. Okay, so if ignoring prior revelation is one of their two key errors, what's the second error? Adopting an egocentric interpretation of Scripture. This is a danger for many interpreters, in particular with the book of Revelation. People always have these presentist interpretations of Revelation and other passages in Bible prophecy. It's like, oh, this has to be going to be fulfilled in my lifetime. So it's kind of a little bit of egocentrism peeking out there. This has to be related to me somehow. Uh, And Manson took it to an extreme. Uh, His delusion of grandeur, you know, is part of his psychosis. Uh, And other people have done the same thing in the past. In the second century, there was a heretic named Montanus who claimed the new Jerusalem is going to descend soon on my hometown in Phrygia. (laughs) My hometown is where new Jerusalem is going to be. Manson basically wrote himself into scripture, and especially Revelation chapter 9. You'll notice there's a track that's very chaotic on the White Album called Revolution 9. Well, Manson linked that to the uh, some of the calamities in Revelation 9. So I'm going to read here uh, from Revelation 9 in the King James Version, which was common at the time, and tell you how Manson interpreted it, or various bits of it. So this is how it goes. And the fifth angel, these are angels with trumpets, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So this is Manson himself. He see, he's the one with the key to the bottomless pit in Death Valley. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. Now, locusts are an insect that are a lot like, in Manson's mind, beetles. So (laughs) these locusts that come out of the smoke from the bottomless pit in Death Valley are the beetles, (laughs) the rock group, and... Unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. Okay, so there's Manson's Atwa philosophy. Air trees, earth, water, or air trees, water, animals, all of those need to be protected. So the angel beetles are not going to hurt them. But only those men who have not the seal of God on their foreheads. That's the 144,000 from Revelation 7, the family. So these angels can't hurt the animals, can't do the Atwa stuff, but you can kill the people as long as they're not members of the family. And so to them, it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days, men shall seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locust were like unto horses prepared for battle, which Charles Manson interprets as meaning dune buggies. (laughs) Horses prepared for battle are dune buggies. And on their heads, as it were, as it were, crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. So the beetles were men. And they had hair like the hair of women. Oh, the beetles had long hair. 
Uh, they were men with long hair, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were, the, the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle, and they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and the, their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue... Uh, hath the name Apollyon, which means destroyer. And Manson says, that's me again. I'm the angel of the bottomless pit. Uh, one woe is past, and behold, behold uh, there come two woes more hereafter. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar that was before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the river Euphrates. So that's the four beetles. And the four angels were loosed, and they were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of mankind. That's the white race, one third of mankind, one of the three races in Manson's mind. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. So that's 200 million. And he says, that's the motorcycle gangs. 200 million motorcyclists. Hmm. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, which he interprets as electric guitars that the Beatles had, and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone, which he interprets as the Beatles' powerful lyrics. So that's Revelation 9, according to Charles Manson. <laughs> Now, it's perhaps the craziest version I've heard, but not by a lot. <laughs> yeah. So we see how he's got this egocentric presentist reading that lets him cherry pick the text for anything that vaguely sounds like something. I mean, electric guitars are not breastplates of fire. This right. is not what they are. Also, notice the conflicts in how he interprets different symbols. Initially, he says the locusts are the beetles. And the text says the shape of the locusts is like a horse prepared for battle, but then that becomes dune buggies. So what are these? Are they are they the beetles or are they dune buggies? Also, he says uh, that the 200 million horsemen is not the four beetles. It's now motorcyclists and an implausibly high number of them because that was the population of the entire United States at the time. It was 208 <laughs> uh, million. And he says 200 million motorcyclists are here. Manson's interpretation obviously just has nothing to do with the text exegetically. He's not exegeting the text. He's eisegeting the text. He's forcing material into it. And it's just his own ideas, and he's doing it higgledy-piggledy. He's not even using a consistent interpretation scheme. All right, so Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Manson family? Uh, my bottom line is the Manson family was a crazy, scary group that committed a bunch of senseless murders in a two-month period in 1969. Uh, they had a variety of motives, uh, in all probability, revenge on Terry Melcher and possibly on Sharon Tate, getting Bobby Beausoleil out of jail, and bringing on Helter Skelter. Uh, Susan Atkins' theory about Manson's personal motive may also have some merit. They were misled by ignoring prior revelation and by letting Manson cherry-pick the Book of Revelation and the lyrics of the Beatles. 
to support his own egocentric delusions. But there's some good news here. First, there are reasons this kind of thing doesn't happen all the time. These people weren't doing it for the money. Uh, and Manson did not do his own killing. So he needed to find other people who were willing to do it and do it for free. He wasn't hiring hitmen. Manson thus needed a bunch of young, immature people that he could manipulate. They needed to be dropouts from society who would abandon their families so their families wouldn't stop this immediately. He needed to get them hopped up on drugs. In fact, one of the things that Tex Watson talks about is he, he, he doesn't think he could have committed the murders if he hadn't immediately taken speed right beforehand. And uh, they had the people he needed to do this to needed to be willing to literally live on garbage with all that food they got from the garbage runs and live in just absolute squalor in Spawn Ranch. I mean, they were, they were covered with flies huh. and stuff. They also needed to have the capacity to murder within them. And that set of factors only comes together very rarely. The late 1960s is one time when it could happen. You know, you have a mass youth rebellion. Everyone's taking drugs. They're getting away from their families. They're living in squalor. All that could happen in they're getting their following gurus. That's the ideal time for this to happen. And that's why it happened here and not other times. So unless you have a major youth rebellion, you don't have to worry about this kind of thing replicating very often. Also, this, as I mentioned, this kind of evil is sharply self-limiting. These people were always going to get caught. Manson was clearly a psychopath with psychotic delusions. Uh, he could not stop bragging about the killings and threatening other people. That just gets the knowledge out there. Uh, Susan Atkins repeatedly confessed to her bunkmates in prison, even though she embellished it. Once they got to Death Valley, first thing to do when you're hiding out, set fire to a piece of government property. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. And then the family members were just always in and out of jail because of their parasitic lifestyle that they were stealing to support. I mean, they steal people's credit cards and stuff. So these people were not master criminals. They were always going to get caught. But fortunately, we'll end on some good news. With the notable exception of Manson himself, the other family members who were involved in the killings, the ones who went to prison, later repented, all of them, and expressed regret, all but Manson. Many ex-family members, both those who did and didn't go to uh, prison, became Christians, and apparently sincere ones. Uh, Tex Watson became a Christian. Susan Atkins became a Christian. I mean, born again, both of them, sincere evangelicals. Dennis Rice, Diane Lake, Catherine Scher became Christians. And some, like Tex Watson and Dennis Rice, even became ministers and founded their own ministries which have online components. You can go to their websites. And I've read, you know, in any time you have a prison conversion, you have to be a little careful of how calculated is this versus how sincere is this. And so I had that in my mind reading. I mean, even if even if they're kind of even if it's kind of for convenience, the fact they came to Jesus in any form is a good thing. But in reading Tex Watson's book, he clearly has entered into the Christian thought process in a way I would not expect of a person who's just learning to mouth Christian lingo for convenience. It's like he's quoting church fathers 
that most people don't even know about and thinking through the implications of what they had to say. So I can't know for sure, but based on the evidence of his book, it looks to me like he's a sincere, repented Christian, which is great. Doesn't mean I think he ought to be let out of jail, but I'm I'm glad he's come to God and asked for forgiveness. That is awesome. And so did other members of the family. That's the most important thing. Yeah. So people want to get some more information on this. What are the further resources uh, folks can look at? We'll have a link to Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, which Tex Watson himself endorses, as I mentioned. We'll also have Susan Atkins' book, The Myth of Helter Skelter, and Tex Watson's book, uh, Manson's Right-Hand Man Speaks Out. We'll also have a link to Bobby Beausoleil's, uh, to a, his fairly recent interview, warning, there's some crude language in it. We'll have an interview that recently came out with Manson's son. One, uh, he has, I guess, a number of children, but one of them is named Michael Manson. He was an infant at the time of the murders. They called him Pooh Bear. And he's now grown up and has kind of been trying to come to terms with what happened. And so you can uh, watch an interview with him. Alter will ha- also will have a link to the TV movie Helter Skelter that you can watch on Amazon, which is a pretty good dramatic reconstruction. It's kind of a docudrama. From from the mid-70s, wasn't it? From the it? 70s. It was yeah. like a two-part TV movie, two-night two event. Then we'll have articles on from Wikipedia on the Manson family, on Charles Manson, on what a Helter Skelter actually is, and you can see a picture of one. Also information on Bernard Lotsapapa Crow and information on Gary Hinman. So uh, we have mysterious feedback this time on uh, our episode where we talked about the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting a few few weeks ago. Uh, We had an email from Thomas who writes, I'm a big fan of the show and I wanted to provide some feedback on the Kenneth Arnold episode. Great episode overall, but I found Jimmy's dismissal of the experimental aircraft hypothesis to be unconvincing. Just because the U.S. military denied any involvement with the craft that Arnold saw doesn't mean we should just take them at their word. After all, if the crafts were top-secret military planes, captured German designs, or from a clandestine Soviet overflight of U.S. territory, the government wouldn't just admit such a highly sensitive national security secret to the public. Even their denial to J. Edgar Hoover might be explainable. As Annie Jacobson discusses in her book about Area 51, classified information can be so compartmentalized that even high-ranking government officials might not have the proper need-to-know clearance. While I'm open to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, I don't think the possibility of terrestrial aircraft using highly advanced or exotic technology can be casually discounted. I don't I don't think it can either. I and I appreciate the positive feedback and the and the critical feedback. I'm quite aware that due to compartmentalization and things like that, one arm of the military doesn't know what the other arm of the military is doing. And we always have to take that into account, especially in UFO situations. But in this case, I would say that if Arnold's speed measurement of what he saw is accurate, it was way faster than any other manned flight at the time. And this and this kind of technology, we would expect to see it cropping up in later decades if as it becomes declassified and becomes more something other people can duplicate. And we don't see that. We have seen other classified aircraft programs get declassified, like the Oxcart and the SR-71 that were uh, developed at Area 51, also the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber. But we haven't seen things like what Arnold saw get declassified and, you know, that 
seemed to also have this flashing effect that could light up his cabin all this distance away as part of their, seems like some kind of pulse drive they're using to move forward. We haven't seen anything like that declassified. Okay. So um, I'm, not, you know, tempted, I'm not saying it's aliens, but I'm tempted to accept the military's or at least give a substantial amount of credence. I'm not saying I'm convinced by it, but give a substantial amount of credence to the military's claim at the time that we don't know what this is. It's not one of ours. Okay. Uh, Kathy S. on YouTube says, uh, I really like the audio from the guy who saw the flying objects. He sounded like a serious man telling the truth, and it was just cool getting to the flavor of the times, the, the smoking joke that Jimmy pointed out, for example. Yeah, that was uh, a joke where when he got down on the ground someone su- and started telling his story, someone suggested to Kenneth Arnold he may need to change his brand or his brand of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. That was a common kind of joke back in the day. People would talk about, oh, this isn't my brand or this is my brand. And uh, yeah, I really liked, I was very glad that I found that audio and was able to get it and include it. I really like bringing the voices of people from history onto the show, either in quotations like the ones Dom reads or in actual audio from the time. I want to do that whenever possible. Mm, that is always and uh, lends an air of uh, a connection to the topic that uh, that that is great. Uh, BP26P on YouTube writes, hey, Jimmy, are you going to do an episode on the theological implications of rational extraterrestrial life? Yes, I plan on doing one for a long time, and it might happen sooner than you think. So mm. stick around for the announcement at the end of this show. <laughs> and then Jason Willie on YouTube writes, uh, Hi, Jimmy, how about running some footage over these podcasts, like different images or video footage? Uh, I think it would add some visual weight to the discussions. Because when we put, po- I just want to explain, when we post these on YouTube, it's just yeah. the, the, the one image that we make as the cover art and then the audio. Right. And uh, I would love to include uh, moving footage over them of one sort or another. The key to doing that is going to be getting the network to a break even point financially, because right now we're not even at break even. We're not currently paying our bills, which means if we don't get that turned around, the network would have to eventually in the not too distant future, either start cutting programs or go out of business. And we have hopes and plans to get to break even, but to then, but that's just to sustain what we're doing now. We need your support to do those things. And then if we can go beyond break even and have additional resources that we can invest in the episodes, that's when we might be able to do things like adding video footage or transcripts or things like that. So your support is what will make things like that possible. Right. Uh, And uh, we'll talk about how you can do that in just a minute. But first, uh, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? So uh, speaking of people committing small crimes that turn out to have bigger implications than they realized, a group of crop circle makers in Alabama have been caught and charged with criminal with a criminal mischief felony. Mm. So if you're a crop circle maker know that the person whose crops you are destroying may not take it kindly. In fact, I know of crops, I know of farmers in England who have, when a crop circle has appeared in one of their fields, they immediately mow it to destroy the crop circle so that the crop circle makers don't get rewarded for having their behavior of destroying his crops. So if you're going to go make up uh, crop circles, be aware you could be charged with criminal mischief, which can be a felony. 
Also, speaking of hoaxes, since we just talked about a crop circle hoax, there has been a recent rash of time travelers talking about things from the future, and they've and they've come back to our time and have been talking on YouTube and other places about what it's like in their time and why they're here and stuff like that. One of them, a time traveler named Noah, blew the whistle on this recently and admitted it's a hoax. Big surprise. Um, <laughs> so you can watch, uh, you can read an article and watch a video of Noah, the time traveler, coming clean and admitting it's it. it, it what happened? He says it started as a joke, but it ceased to be funny, and he wants to tell the truth now. Good for him. Uh, <laughs> coming clean. Uh, in a second, I'll ask Jimmy what we're going to be talking about next week on the show. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Felix L., Claudia S., James K., Alfredo B., and Ed B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yickens' Mysterious World in all the shows at StarQuest, you can join them in our efforts to break even and keep going on by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, uh, BP26P asked for a show, as many others have, on the theological implications of intelligent aliens existing. That's been something we're, we've planned on doing for a long time, and we're doing it next week. Excellent. Aliens. Uh, very good. So uh, that's it from us. What did you think about this discussion of the Charles Manson murders on the 50th anniversary of their uh, the, the tragic occurrence? You can let us know with uh, some comments or your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can leave a feedback there or you can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Or you can send a tweet to our Twitter handle, which is at MYS underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Uh, if you can, if you're listening to this in some uh, way that's uh, like, let's say someone sent you a file or shared a file with you, or you're listening on our website. Be sure to subscribe to the show uh, you, through Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can subscribe in Stitcher on TuneIn. You can have a, your favorite podcast app or on some, like some of our feedback today, YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel or Jimmy's YouTube channel. We, we post in both places. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel and make sure you hit the bell to get notifications when their new episode goes up. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.